Welcome to Illinois Family Spotlight, a conversation about faith, family, freedom, the state of Illinois, our nation, and conservative action. Here's David Smith and Monty Larrick. Thanks for making Illinois Family Spotlight part of your day. During this edition, we'll highlight a talk given by Walt Heyer during the Illinois Family Institute's 2019 Worldview Conference held at Stone Church in Orland Park. Mr. Heyer is a one-time corporate executive who underwent gender reassignment surgery at the age of 42 and spent eight years living as a woman. But Walt's life was transformed by Jesus Christ. He's an accomplished author and conference speaker. His website, sexchangeregret.com, reaches over 250,000 people a year. It's so important for us to realize when, when you hear that people can't come back out of this lifestyle, that you actually see a witness that says you can. And if you come to a relationship with Jesus Christ, you will find Christ and you will be redeemed and you will be restored and you will realize that living that lifestyle that I lived is not God's intention. But it's important for us, I think, to kind of set this up so we have a little introduction into how this got started. And I'll try to do it briefly. First off, it, it started a long time ago in the 1950s. Uh, Kinsey, Benjamin, and Money. Three men who, in the early 50s, throughout the 60s, coined a term, well, the, the term was out there, transgender, but they actually brought it to life. All three of these men were pedophile activists. This is how it got started. It was never a medically necessary procedure. It was all based on three men with the ideology that it was okay for adult men to have sex with young boys. That's how it got started. This is the mindset. This wasn't a group of doctors who found out that people were born this way and they began to restore them or align their body. That, was, that all came later. This was about three desperate men and their ideology about having sex with young boys. I think it's important that we know that. The other thing is that you probably didn't know that the first sign, because people talk about how successful this is, that's what we hear, that it's successful and it's good, it's wonderful, and that's why we have all these laws. In 1979, Harry Benjamin had a gender clinic and it, that had been in operation by this time for about six years where they had been doing surgeries and so forth. And Dr. Charles L. Illenfeld, who was an endocrinologist working at the Benjamin Clinic for six years, went to Tappan, New York to speak to a group not unlike this, except they were all clinicians. They were therapists and, and doctors. And at the end of six years, he stood up in front of them like I am this morning, telling that group in 1979, I've worked with 500 people over the last six years that have undergone reassignment surgery. And he said, I want to tell you that 80% of them should not have the surgery because there's too much unhappiness among them and too many of them end in suicides. 1979. And he said, in the 20% that remain, it will not be a lifelong solution. 
it will only be a temporary reprieve from the difficulty they're having. He said, I'm going into psychiatry, no longer going to be an endocrinologist, so that I can actually help the people because of their deeper problems. 79. In my view, that should have ended it. 2004, a study done in the UK, published in The Guardian, done by the University of Birmingham, and they took 100 studies about the conclusions that people have been finding, not unlike what Illenfeld had been speaking about. And they studied 100 of them, and they came to the conclusion, and the headline of the article in, in The Guardian said, sex change surgery is ineffective, say researchers, 2004. And they concluded, I think, in about the third paragraph of that article, too many of them, after having surgery, are traumatized to the point of committing suicide. 2014, the American Psychological Association came out in their handbook about these kind of identities, homosexuality, transgenderism, and he, they said in that handbook, transgenders are not born that way. So we have all of this evidence over all this time from prestigious groups, and yet we're passing laws and we're telling people that it's okay. Well, I'm telling you it's not okay. It's destroying lives. Now, how did I get started? 1944. All right, I know I don't look that old. Uh, 1944, in Los Angeles, California, my parents, good parents, they liked to go fishing and hunting and, and so forth, and they would drop me off at my grandma's house. My grandma, I was four years old, Grandma was a seamstress. That's the way she made money. And she lived in a rundown old shack off of Figueroa. She would earn money by making women's clothing for people in the neighborhood. And, and so I would be over to her house. And I remember leaning on the sewing machine and just watching her sew. And yes, I became interested. There was nothing to do. There was nobody else around, just Grandma. My, my grandfather was out driving a tow truck and he was rarely there. And she began to see this curiosity that I had and my interest in what she was doing. She made me a purple chiffon evening dress. It's a beautiful dress, four years old. She made me the dress, put the dress on me, and then she began to affirm me about how cute I looked and how wonderful I looked. And it became a routine, a habit. And I'm here to tell you today, as I look back now, 74 years later, her affirmations and putting me in that purple chiffon dress was child abuse. Let's call it what it is. It's emotional and psychological child abuse, and it should not happen. We are destroying the psyches of young people who have no knowledge about what the consequences are going to be when they're 78 years old standing up and, and, and talking to somebody. Now I can tell you what the consequences are, and they're not good. They're destructive. Please, we got to call it what it is. No matter how unpopular it is, it's child abuse. To affirm them, to encourage them, to develop them, it's early sexualization. All these things are very harmful. So with this introduction, then I began to have the thoughts that there was something wrong with me. Because you see, when we affirm somebody in this gender, at the very same time, we can't avoid the fact that we're saying there's something wrong with you over here. See, there was something wrong with little Walt. And we process this. 
two things happen. Child abuse and you're telling the person there's something wrong with them. So they're looking to get something that's right. I used to go to bed after those nights. Now, she told me this was a secret. Don't tell your parents. And we also know about secrets, don't we? If we're doing something wrong, we want to keep it a secret. Now, how does a four-year-old kid know what's wrong and right? And you're not going to go against grandma. I mean, the most precious thing is grandma. You believe whatever grandma says, even when it's destroying your life. Well, that introduction into that purple dress planted the seed. Now, it didn't have the words in those days. We didn't have the word transgender, gender dysphoria. It's 1944. It's long before that ever happened. I didn't even know. I just knew that grandma loved me as a little girl much more than she did as a boy. And I knew that if I was going to be loved by grandma, that I needed to be in the purple dress, not in my little cowboy boots, not little Walt. I had to process this information as a young boy at night, laying in bed. Sometimes it would take me an hour, hour and a half to go to sleep because I'd try to figure out what's this all about. Sometimes I wept about it because I couldn't figure it out. It stayed with me and it began to build in me until I actually became, I think, addicted to the affirmation. I wanted the affirmation. So the secret held for about two and a half years until I became so excited about the affirmations as a young boy. Now I'm about six years old. I took the purple dress home secretly and put it, I think, in my dresser, as I remember, bottom dresser drawer. It wasn't long after that my mother found the dress and then confronted me about it. That was the first time she knew what was going on at grandma's house. My dad was an auxiliary police officer on the L.A. police force. He was an industrial goods salesman. He was a judo expert. He was a powerful guy. He was not happy. He was really angry. And keep in mind, we're talking the mid-1940s. There's no internet. There's no information. He just knows grandma's dressing his little boy in a purple dress. And so I couldn't go back to grandma's house. The purple dress disappeared but uh, I couldn't get rid of it. It was embedded into my psyche. Dad, in his wisdom, with no other means of understanding what was going on, decided that he was going to use heavy discipline and like a blacksmith over hot iron, pound his little boy into a man. So he used very heavy discipline on me. A hardwood floor plank across my butt when I did something wrong that would raise welts because of the purple dress. And I think it's important. I want to connect each one of these things so that we realize what happens. The pur without the purple dress, I never would have got the hardwood floor plank. The connections, there's these cascading events that started with the affirmation of child abuse turns into further cascading abuses. His adopted brother, my uncle, Fred, when I was probably eight or nine, because of the purple dress, decided that I was fair game to be sexually abused. Again, the sexual abuse would not have occurred had it not been for the purple dress. Here's a boy. I'm eight years, nine years old. I've been put in a purple dress and affirmed. I've been hit with a hardwood floor plank more times than I can tell you. And now I'm being sexually abused by an uncle. How do you process that? You don't. You internalize it. It's pain. You have no place to go with it. When I told my parents what Uncle Fred was doing, they said, you're a liar. 
he would never do that. And so now I have the additional burden of realizing I had no place to go. No place to go. I needed to deal with this before I was 10 years old on my own terms the best I could. So I internalized it. By the time I was 13, I had a secret name in my head because the stuff was still going on. The purple dress did not go away one day. It was like a radio playing or a movie in my head telling me that I needed to be a girl, that there was something wrong with me, all that that was planted early on. That continued to go through my life into my teens. I identified secretly as Crystal West. I don't know where that name came up. I just kind of made it up. It was a way for me to feel comfortable about the pain. I was a little guy. I'm not particularly big now. So I was a little guy, but I, I got into sports. I ran track. I was quite efficient as a runner. I played football on the B, B team, and, and I was a kicker. I was a good kicker. So I was athletic. I was not homosexual. I had no same-sex attraction. I didn't have homosexual ideology. I, I can tell you, and I laugh about this with my friends who are homosexual. I don't understand homosexuals, okay? I don't get that whole thing. I mean, I had my own problems just wearing a dress. So they can have theirs. I had mine. So, so I was dealing with this. You know, I, I ended up having a girlfriend in high school named Lola Joy Phipps. Now, come on. Is that a great name? I mean, even if she wasn't good looking, the name was great. But she was good looking and, and we, we had this great relationship and we, we had a relationship for quite a while in high school. And I finally, near graduation time, I told her finally what I was struggling with, with the purple dress. And she said, well, I really care about you, but I can't, can't have a relationship with you because it's way too confusing and too, too much for me. And I understand that. So again, I realized that talking about this with anybody was kind of something you didn't do. You needed to internalize it. And where would I go with it? Walt Heyer, during the Illinois Family Institute's 2019 Worldview Conference at Stone Church in Orland Park, will continue with his remarkable and inspiring story after this. Looking forward to Super Bowl commercials? Don't expect pro-life ones. For the Colson Center, I'm John Stone Street with The Point. Iconic Super Bowl ads go way back and appeal to even non-football fans, from Michael Jordan and Larry Bird's Game of Horse to E-Trade's Talking Baby to Budweiser's What's Up commercial. They tell us a lot about where the culture is. For example, you see fewer hypersexual ones, but far more virtue-signaling ones. This year, the Sabra Hummus commercial will feature a drag queen. According to one LGBT marketing strategist, the ad will, quote, take our language into every home in the nation. At the same time, according to Life News, Faces of Choice has produced an ad featuring the testimonies of those who have survived abortions. But Fox Sports won't even respond to their request for ad time. So abortion survivors are too controversial, but not drag queens? What a strange world we live in. We pretend as if abortion survivors don't even exist, but they do. And we pretend that people can change their biological sex, but they don't. I'm John Stone Street. Thanks for joining Illinois Family Spotlight. During this segment, Walt Heyer discusses how he was rescued from gender dysphoria, alcoholism, and homelessness. I'd heard about Christine Jorgensen. I could, once they've had that 
headline about Christine Jorgensen being a transgender, I could start then attaching a name to what was going on or what had started in my life, transgender. Still didn't have the term gender dysphoria, but I was kind of a bright guy. I went to school, studied drafting. I, I left school and went into uh, to become a draftsman in, in Glendale, California. I worked on the, actually at uh, Libroscope, and worked on the Polaris missile system as a draftsman. And over a period of time, I became an associate design engineer working at North American Aviation on the Apollo space mission in the area of cryogenics. And from there, uh, I left aerospace and went into the automobile industry and became a top executive for American Honda Motor Company after working for American Motors and Renault prior to that and became the national operations manager for American Honda Motor Company dealing with about $25 million worth of contracts because I was responsible for the movement of every single Honda automobile from the time that it came to the port until it was delivered to the dealership. All the rail, trucking, freight, damage control, and storage. So I had a big job. I flew all over the country. I had two parking places at work. I had two secretaries. I was a bigwig, but I had a purple dress in my head. I was married and had two children by this time, and I was struggling. I could not get this early childhood affirmation, sexual abuse, and hardwood floor plank. I couldn't deal with it. I did not know how to process it, and it was affecting everything I did. I began to, in my great success, I began to have such great pain in my 30s that I started using alcohol and cocaine. Still successful, still bringing home a great paycheck that I wish I could bring home today. <laughs> so does my wife. And uh, so I was dealing with this, so I, I decided that it was time that I went to get help. So I went to one of these specialists who deals in gender. And so let me first just stop and say, if you see one of those the door, go the other way and find somebody who's not a specialist in gender dysphoria because they will rip you apart. This guy that I went to because I was affluent was the guy who wrote the original standards of care for diagnosing and treating people with gender dysphoria, Dr. Paul Walker. His writings actually became what we know today as the current standards of care. It's morphed and been changed, but he was the original author. He was my therapist. I wanted the best. I went to him and he said, well, you have gender identity disorder. He said, eventually it's going to be called gender dysphoria and the, the treatment for what you're going through. And I told him my history, sexual abuse, the whole thing. He said, you need to have hormone therapy and gender reassignment surgery. That's the treatment. I said, well, it seemed a little radical. He said, well, this is, this is what we do. This is what the process is. That was 1981. So I took the opportunity to listen to him, told my wife. We were struggling with that, obviously. But after about two years, I was taking hormones and we got divorced. By 1983, I underwent gender reassignment surgery. Uh, I lost my job with American Honda Motor Company. They packed up all my stuff in a little box, met me at the guard gate, and I was gone. Within a fairly short period of time, I was divorced, no job, and was living in a park in Long Beach, California. And I thought, you know, maybe this is not working real good. I, 
that's how bright I was. I could actually figure that out. And so I called a friend that I had met in one of my other jobs and said, I think I need to go to start going to AA meetings and maybe straighten out from alcoholism and drug addiction. And so I went to the first meeting in Pacific Palisades, and I was so messed up and so dirty and so bad looking. You know, usually if you've ever been to an AA meeting, everybody hugs everybody. Hey, yeah, you know, it's all cool. People went, what is that? <laughs> Stay away, you know. And so there were two guys that got close enough to me and, and asked me, do you have a place to stay? And I said, no, I don't. And one of them looked at the other and says, well, we could put him in our garage. And so I stayed. They took me and let me stay in the garage. And that's where I lived for a while, in a garage. And they were kind of these AA guys who really wanted to help people. And so they made sure I went to meetings every day and got me going. And so today I have about 33 years of recovery. So... <laughs> I can tell you that's necessary. And so I began my journey back to restoration, but it started with dealing with my alcohol. And I met a counselor at, at uh, Fuller Seminary, and I won't go into a lot of detail. It's in one of my books. But I met with him, and he had a pastor friend in Pleasanton, California. He says, you know, you need a place to live. You need a way to have income and and so I moved up there. I moved in with the pastor and his family. He gave me a bedroom. And I began to go to church. I began to have uh, big arguments with the pastor because we had this uh, great relationship. We'd stay up until 2 or 3 in the morning, have what we called philosophical conversations. They were some of the most heated arguments you've ever seen. Yeah. But they were fun. And he's still a friend of mine. He was at our house. So we've stayed in contact all these years. So I began this journey back, and I, be, I, I wanted to learn more about what was happening and realized what I needed to do was I, I'm, I'm in a recovery program, I'm not drinking, I'm getting sober, and I started studying psychology at UC Santa Cruz, and I realized that in, when I started looking at some of the books and dealing with this whole transgender Thing. One of the first stories, the story out of Cornell University where they had a study where a guy became a transgender and he became a transgender because he was very close to his mother and his mother had passed away and he took on his mother's identity so that he would not feel the loss of his mother. He just became, in his own mind, he identified with his mother so that he didn't feel that loss. And I thought, well, that's pretty bizarre. And I realized then that I needed to start looking and digging deeper into this, that maybe the component here, there's deeper psychological issues that manifest themselves in this way. And we heard from Dr. Illenfeld, who became a psychiatrist because he said the problems are much deeper in 79. So he knew this, and I was starting to put the dots together. Because people who, you know, the, with this group of transgenders who uh, attempt suicide at a rate of 40%, we know one thing. Healthy, psychologically healthy, and psychologically, emotionally, people do not attempt to take their life. That's just a given. If you're healthy enough, you can take pretty much anything that comes at you. If you're not, you can't. And you want to just dispense with your life. So the population has a, a, a large group of people within it that are not very healthy. So in, in realizing this and, and going through this process, I learned that uh, in my own life, that the sexual abuse, 
was a, a huge part of it. The physical abuse, the affirmations, the purple dress, all played a part in, in causing me to have great, deep problems. And I exercised that ideology of trying to escape the pain by going into a transgender identity as Laura Jensen. And so I, I began to put my faith together with psychotherapy, going to psychotherapy frequently, and working on my, it was kind of a triple threat, getting recovery, Christ, and dealing with my deeper psychological problems. I began to crawl out of it. It's not a magic bullet. It's a, it was a lot of work. It's not easy, and you have to be fully committed to it. You also have to say living that way is wrong. You have to admit that you're wrong. I learned that in AA. You know, somewhere along the line, you have to admit, I used to say, you know, I'm just wacko. I mean, somewhere along the line, you've got to admit this is nuts, and it's not the way to live. As I began to work with a couple of psychologists, Christian psychologists in the Bay Area, and working on my recovery program, I was working my four-step, and, and if anybody's familiar with AA and the four-step, it's you go through all these things that had happened, and you write down all these things on, I did on a yellow line piece of paper and went to him, and we had a two-and-a-half-hour session in his office sort of dealing with this cascading events that got me to where I was, a broken man by a lot of events in my life that, that caused me to be there. And as I wrote them down and as the therapist began to go through them in this two-and-a-half-hour session, and we kept turning them over to the Lord, each one of them, two-and-a-half hours, and I had them all written down on this piece of paper. And so what happened that afternoon, he said, well, let's take that piece of paper, go outside in the parking lot. And we did, and he went out there and he grabbed the paper. There were several pages, and he took a match, and he lit the match, and he put it to the corner of the paper and let it burn symbolically burning it up, the gentle breeze took those ashes, and they're gone. There was a sense of relief that I wasn't holding on to those things and that they were gone. And he said, let's go back to my office and we're going to pray. Well, that scared me because this guy, when he prays, he prays forever. And I, I'm like one of these guys that prayers, okay, it's over, thank you. You know, I'm not, I'm not very good on the long prayer thing, but this guy loved to do the long prayers. And I'm guilty of short prayers, okay? Convict me. Don't tell me there isn't some of you out here either, you know. So went back to his office. I knew I was in deep trouble. And we started praying. And we started praying. And we're praying some more. And we're still praying. And I don't really remember much about what he was praying about. And all of a sudden, though... There was a moment I looked up. The Lord was coming down with his arms stretched out toward me. And I could see in front of me a little baby wrapped in white cloth. The Lord came down and grabbed that little baby, pulled him into his chest. The Lord turned to me in that prayer and said, you are now safe with me forever. The Lord turned and went away. I was redeemed. I was redeemed so that I could be here and share my story with you today. Thank you. Walt Heyer, during the Illinois Family Institute's 2019 Worldview Conference. A reminder, his website is sexchangeregret.com. Be sure to join IFI for the 2020 Worldview Conference, Saturday, March 7th 
at the Village Church of Barrington. Dr. Michael Brown and Dr. Robert Gagnon will encourage us to think biblically about our corrosive culture. If you'd like to attend, click events at IllinoisFamily.org or call 708-781-9328. IllinoisFamily.org or call 708-781-9328. Please support the work of the Illinois Family Institute. All donations are tax deductible. And tell a friend about Illinois Family Spotlight. Until next time, God bless. Thank you for listening to Illinois Family Spotlight. For more information, please visit us at ifiaction.org and look for us on Facebook and Twitter. If you would like to email us questions or comments, please do so at feedback at ifiaction.org. Until next time, stay engaged and keep your eyes on the prize. 